I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music, and this episode is a long one, because James Jacobs and I are talking about Handel's Messiah. It is a massive work with lots of interesting facts and stories, like whether or not you can bring your sword to the premiere, hidden meanings behind key signatures, and musical theft. And we explore it all with lots of musical examples. So grab a coffee or a tea and enjoy this episode of Classical Breakdown about Handel's masterpiece. James, I bet you haven't heard Handel's Messiah quite like this. Um, no, I haven't, John. But, you know, I think Handel would even appreciate this today. You know, hundreds of years later, his music is still being played around with and remixed. Well, from what I know about Handel, he didn't really appreciate much of anything. Mm-hmm. So he didn't even appreciate good performances of his own music. So he, he let's, let's just say that that wouldn't have made him any more cranky than anything else. Right. But what is true, certainly, is that he constantly fiddled with his own music. That is absolutely true. He constantly changed and rearranged his own music, and he rarely uh, performed something the same way twice. He always adapted it to the situation, to the performers, uh, to, you know, his pulse on the cultural uh, moments in London, which kept on changing as well. And I think that's what makes this piece so much fun in that there are so many different versions even that Handel was doing. And there's so many interesting details on a lot of the little specifics of this piece. And then there's randomly almost nothing about some of the big things about this piece in right. terms of like historical details. So it's, it's funny because it's so ubiquitous and yet so much of it is still a mystery. It's, right. Yeah. So when was this composed? He wrote this pretty quick, right? Between like August and September of 1741? Yes, 1742 or 1741, I think. Yes. And, uh, and, it was the idea of a man named Charles Jennings, who was uh, uh, fairly, you know, fairly religious and learned, and wrote the libretti for many of Handel's oratorios, which was uh, still something that Handel was exploring as a kind of alternative um, income source to opera, which had pretty much died out by this time in in England. And um, Messiah doesn't really have a plot so much. Right. Uh, or it's a sort of vague plot and a lot of it is assumed on the part of the audience. It's sort of a it's sort of a general overview of of uh Christ's life, I guess. Yeah. And I, I, you could say and of the major tenets of Christianity and uh and what's interesting about it is that it was – I think it's hard for us to appreciate just how radical this was at the time oh, yeah. because this was a theater piece. This was not a piece for church, uh, even though it's been in the last couple of centuries, you know, performed in many churches. I think even during Handel's lifetime was performed in churches. But but it was not intended for that, for liturgical use. It was intended for general consumption and the idea that there was this fine line – between the liturgical, between the sacred and the secular, between sacred and secular music and sacred and secular aesthetics um, was something that um, was fairly new, though, I mean, that line has been a tenuous one, had been a tenuous one for a long time, ever since Monteverdi and even before that. And, um, And it seems like whoever in history goes right up to that line and straddles it gets a really great success out of it. And when he wrote this, it was 
really for a small ensemble, two trumpets, uh, timpani, two oboes, two violins, viola, and basso continua, which could be something like harpsichord and cello. This piece actually had its premiere in Dublin, Ireland. And for those performances, he didn't even have any woodwinds. Um, he brought his own organ, believe it or not. Uh, he had it shipped all the way from, yeah, I mean, it was obviously it was a chamber organ, but still it was his own organ. And he made a big deal about conducting from the organ and showing off, you know, his uh, uh, prowess in his organ concertos. And so we know that it had organ. It definitely had two trumpets and timpani. And other than that, it just had strings. And we don't even, we have no idea how large the string ensemble was. It could have been... Uh, it could have been as little as 12 strings, you know, um, but there was no woodwind. So it's a very, but so he wrote it to be performed um, in a variety of different situations. And then later on when he performed it in London, he added uh, oboes and bassoons and horns, but, um, and expanded the resources. And when this premiered in Dublin, it was April 13th, 1742. And the thing is April around Easter time when this was originally um, written for. Yes, it was written for the festival. It was the Ho- Holy Week, right? And that's what it was intended for, was a sort of secular celebration of Holy Week. And um, it didn't get its Christmas um, uh, associations until well after Handel's death. Um, and uh, it was always associated with Easter. And if actually, if you go through it, it makes a lot more sense. Is it From a textual liturgical standpoint, it actually makes a lot more sense as an Easter piece. And with the premiere, it was huge, like 700 people in the audience, and they were able to fit this many people in there because of a previous announcement. It was said that women should not wear hoops in their dresses and that men should not bring their swords. And I find that so funny because I can imagine someone just got a new hoop, someone just got a new sword made, and now they can't take it to their premiere. But that was such a odd time. This kind of thing comes up a lot in Handel's work, where we learn not only a lot about music, but a lot about life in England. Like, for example, during his um, the premiere of his Royal Fireworks music, that's our first... Um, uh, so many people went to it that it's the first documented traffic jam in, oh, yeah. in London's history. And uh, it was all horses and buggies. This was before air conditioning. So think about those 700 people all squashed together. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not not nice. Um, but at these concerts, especially also later on, but right from the premiere, it was a charity event, uh, raising money for um, prisoners' debt relief, a hospital, an infirmary. In today's dollars, they raised about $86,000. But starting in 1750, that's when it really became annually a charity concert to raise money. And that's when, you know, it's back in London, of course, at this point, and in other places, too. And more instruments get added, different singers, different configurations. And that was the genius of Handel making this, this scoring so adaptable, uh, which was something that uh, Charles Jennings, his librettist, really objected to. He said, well, why isn't this as, as you know, splendiferous as his other oratorios like Saul, which had all sorts of, you know, you've had trombones and all sorts of different instruments and even some percussion. And this was fairly simple. And he did that for a reason. So he could adapt it to a variety of situations. And it also was a good way of kind of taking the, the, um, the priority, the attention off of himself and onto the charity. Sort of like, okay, don't spend money on all these exotic musicians. Let's oh, just yeah. get the basic orchestra and, you know, save the money for the orphans, and it, which is very 
you know, says a lot about him. Oh, yeah. And we think about in the 1900s up to now, that's when we get these huge, massive choirs and orchestras and stuff. But I've read that even in as early as the 1780s, one performance had 259 musicians, 87 strings, 10 bassoons, 11 oboes, 8 flutes, 4 clarinets, 8 horns, 7 trumpets, 4 trombones, timpani, and organ, and almost feeling useless at that point, harpsichord, adding it into it. But that's, I mean, now you're you're bigger than Mahler. How could you even hear a harpsichord and all that? You don't. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they did, but apparently they did it, and a lot of people loved it. So there you go. So the whole work is in three parts. Part one deals with the prophecy, the birth of Christ, into part two, the death and resurrection, the gospel, part three, that eternal life and judgment, the whole package here over uh, over three parts. And we're going to get into um, a bunch of different scenes in these parts with musical examples and mainly featuring a great recording with John Elliott Gardner conducting the English Baroque soloists, the Monteverdi Choir, and our solo singers, soprano Margaret Marshall, mezzo-soprano Catherine Robin, tenor Anthony Rolf Johnson, bass Robert Hale, and boy soprano in this recording, in this version, is uh, Saul Quirk. So we can go right from the beginning. Part one uh, in scene one, and it starts with really what is an early example of a symphony that we actually talked about in our symphony podcast. But here's how this whole thing opens. And it's an opening that I wouldn't, if you don't know the piece, you wouldn't quite associate with the Hallelujah Chorus, that big, grandiose, major key sounding thing. No, but it, it sets the mood. And uh, E minor, by the way, which is the key of this uh, symphony or overture, um, had a very specific meaning and affect in um, in Handel's time. And that was because, and yes, they were not above doing this sort of thing. The key signature for E minor is one sharp, which looks like a cross. And that's okay. not a coincidence. The solemnity in that particular key of E minor, which also resonated in a very particular way with the string instruments of the time, which also helped to create this opening and uh, this sound, this very solemn, grand sound. Well, that's that's something I also didn't even really quite know and that it makes sense. And I mean, of course, Handel, as you said, nothing is an accident. And going into scene one, comfort ye my people. From minor to major. Yes. And just in that transition from that somber opening instrumental movement to this tenor saying comfort ye in major, that's that's the entire journey in a nutshell. That's a sort of um, microcosm of, you know, he's showing us where he's, where we're coming from, where we're going. And in a way, the whole, um, 
the whole idea of Christianity, of religion, and of and of creating this festival um, composition, celebrating those things. Uh, that it's about it's about recognizing the solemnity of life, but also comforting us um, in our time of need, which we had after all that grim E minor stuff, you know, and. Uh, and E major with all those, you know, we've gone from one sharp to four and it's all, you know, all of a sudden it's all very um, happy. It has a very different sort of, even with just that one little minor tweak, the entire resonance changes. Oh, yeah. And a lot of performances, they don't include every single part of Messiah. They have, they take some excerpts out. Yeah, there's um, there's no definitive Messiah uh, that could be a, that's a loaded statement right there, but never mind. Musically, <laughs> musically, there's, musically, there's no music, definitive. There's, musically, there's no definitive Messiah because, as we mentioned before, he kept on tweaking it and taking things out. Certainly, those two pieces that we've heard so far are in every version of Messiah, right? But we'll, let's jump to the third scene for something interesting that Handel's also done with the music. This is the people that walked in darkness. You know, one of the many ways in which Handel was an innovator is and is in yet something else that we take for granted now, which is the difference between minor and major tonality. I mean, I think many of us were growing up like minor keys are sad and major keys are happy. That wasn't really the case before the 18th century. Uh, that wasn't, you know, that, I mean, the, you had affects maybe for modes, but the idea that minor, the minor key had this cloud over it and had this mystery about it, again, was something that Handel really was one of the pioneers of exploiting as a, as an expressive device. And he does that so well in, in, in this aria where you can da da, you can hear those steps and you can hear the sort of trying to feel your way around in a dark wood or a dark space. And uh, he does that so well in what we call tone painting. That's what it sounds like. Someone is, you know, your eyes are closed and you're wandering through your hallway at night and you're bumping into this, into that. And the music, those musicians all playing basically the same notes together. Um, I forget what key this is in, in B minor. Um, this is actually one of those key pieces that he changed the keys around for different oh, okay. things. So that's the, but, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> what I like is the darkness. It's in this minor key. And then when he starts singing about the light, something changes. And with the light, we have now this major key popping out. The the harmonies are, are coming out and everything. I just love that difference in the sound that really brings the whole thing more to life. Absolutely. And I think another thing that to really appreciate about this about this aria is an exp- is um, it's a great e- example of 
Handel's economy of means. You know, you notice, I mean, you could have done that with a single violin and a cello and an organ and that's it, you know, the singer. I mean, he, he wrote it for, you know, it's just, and then with just a few gestures, you get this liturgical universe, this philosophical universe, this musical universe. It, it just, it opens so much up and he does so much with so little really. And it's also uh, important to remember that English was definitely not his first language. And, um, I mean, he learned it, but he never quite mastered it, which is, you know. Is... One thing you said before, which I think really works with this example and several of them, is Handel doing more with less, but also you hear that in performances in its own kind of way. Here's another very popular section. We're still in scene three. This is For Unto Us. And this one is also a very popular excerpt of Messiah in general. You hear this all the time. Well, this well, this is the part that really is about Christmas. And um, and what I love about uh, you know, Handel could get very complex, but you hear just in that little excerpt, you know, he's doing this counterpoint, but you still hear the text. You still he never gets so far away, so he doesn't get so far in the contrapuntal weeds that we. Um, that we aren't reminded about what this music is about and what it's trying to communicate, which is really, I think, one of the strengths of this work and what makes it unique and why, one of the reasons why it communicates to so many people and, you know, for so many different reasons. And he did that, again, it's not an accident. That's my favorite thing about the Baroque period, but also Handel, the clarity in the harmonies. You hear the, like a depth of field of the musicians and the parts kind of like reaching out in front of you, you can hear this whole thing built up. And as Alistair Coleman in an earlier episode on this podcast mentioned, when writing, especially with text, uh, the text is king. The text is really the biggest part you have to focus on. And Handel does that here in a great way. Listen to another part of this movement. And this is where I'm talking about doing more with less. There's not a lot of singers, there's not a lot of musicians, but that is a huge sound. And as you know, if you have me as a brass player, if there's eight if there's eight of us on stage and we're playing perfectly in tune, perfectly in time with each other, a huge section maybe we're playing, it's going to sound massive. If you have 30 or 40 people playing and it's not quite in tune, it's not quite all together, it doesn't sound as loud, it doesn't sound right. as big. And what's interesting, I mean, we're playing a recording that was made um, in the, you know, in, I think in the 80s, in yeah. the advent of the early music movement. And um, and at that time, you know, if you were, you know, perhaps older than 50 or if you're used to recordings from a long time ago, you might be hearing, you might be used to hearing this, this chorus with more instruments because up until... Um, the 70s and 80s, uh, people would add instruments to this. And so they would add trumpets and drums to this. They would add 
you know, oboes and bassoons and clarinets even. And I think the what the genius of doing Handel's original version is that um, he, first of all, you don't need it. He creates all this sense of glory just in these, uh, just in these few instruments that he does. And also that way he can reserve the, you know, the big guns for later on when you really need them, you know, when you want to have that one push more. But, uh, so the, so it's, it is, so you kind of imagine that you hearing, um, this celestial choir and this cast of thousands, even with just, you know, something like 30 or 40 people, you know? Oh yeah. And we'll hear more of this kind of idea when we get to, of course, the big hallelujah chorus movement, but we're not there yet. We're going into scene four where we're getting into the shepherds and it starts with another small symphony called PIFA, right? This pastoral symphony. So this this is evocative of of a musette, which was uh, a kind of uh, small folk bagpipe that that was popular in Handel's time and also evocative of actual uh, instruments played by actual shepherds. You're exactly right. It has that drone underneath, that sound of, of the shepherds, uh, the lilting nature of it, the rhythm. Yes. You can tell that um, as Handel traveled, he kept his ears open uh, to all sorts of different kinds of music. And he has the um, – it's just in three parts, and each part is doubled at the octave. So you get this interesting – it really does – it is like a, an extra stop on on a bagpipe and um, – and uh, it's it creates this mysterious sound that it sounds it sounds like Christmas really in a way and um, and I remember once going to a performance where they actually used an actual folk bagpipe and you and, and you were sitting there and some guy is walking down the aisle and you, wow you think well, what's going on and you hear this this uh, small folk bagpipe coming up the aisle you know and you know, getting as he's and it's a very very dramatic effect yeah but of course you don't really need to do that <laughs> no <laughs> Handel, but it'll does it for you yeah he does it for you that's the thing and still in scene four we now get to glory to God and we have a beautiful trumpet brought in here as well and hundreds of years later we have different ways we can kind of think about or even play this now remember this is the first time we're hearing in in, at least in Handel's time this is the first time we're hearing trumpets anything other than strings and continuo in the entire piece and we're about what half hour in or something yeah And with this example, the trumpets are a little bit, it's not that they're soft, they sound distant. Right. He actually marks the score lontano, which means uh, to be heard from a distance. Now, we don't know how literally we're supposed to take that, whether they're actually supposed to be offstage trumpets or maybe up in the organ loft, you know, or in a balcony, or just playing on stage, but a little softer than full blast. 
And we'll hear more examples with trumpet that really showcase more of the different kinds of trumpets that we can play this on. So at the time, the Baroque trumpet, or as I assume they just called it in English, maybe the trumpet, uh, it was one long tube, a very long tube, actually longer than a trumpet would be today. But it was just a tube, like a bugle, basically, a huge bugle. Today, when you see a concert, it's the modern trumpet with three valves, um, slides that can also move a little bit to play uh, more in tune. Kind of a sort of in between what a lot of musicians will play today is the natural trumpet. It's basically the Baroque trumpet, but a couple of tiny holes added that a couple of your fingers can cover or uncover to help with intonation because these are extraordinarily difficult instruments to play. You know, your trumpet in your uh, player in your big orchestra doesn't just pick up a natural trumpet and go to a gig. You know, it's a very specialized thing. And they, they're very difficult because you don't have those valves to add or take away tubing to make it easier for your lips to play the note. You're really having to sometimes feel like you're forcing the note out. Absolutely. And I think uh, even though when you play it on a modern instrument or on a modified Baroque instrument, um, you know, it sounds prettier and it sounds easier, but there's something about the thrill of knowing what the player is going through that adds this electricity to it, um, which Handel knew very well. Um, you know, uh, trumpet players belonged to a different guild than everybody else, which is why one of the reasons why Handel uses brass instruments so sparingly in his works. They just come in for the re last rehearsal and then the performance. So they, you know, in this, in this case, one trumpet player plays for four pieces, the other one plays for three. And, um, but when they play, it's this, it's a very specialized thing. It's almost, uh, it's, it's as much, it's as thrilling as hearing the singers. It's almost, or like seeing an Olympic athlete, you know, it's something, it's, it's a feat. The but, sound is going to be, um, especially the attacks of notes. I don't want to say like a swell or a kind of a balloon, but there's more happening on the attack of the note and then more decay. Um, when you have a modern trumpet, the sound is going to be much brighter. It's going to have, I think, more clarity. It can sing a little bit more, and the attacks are very, very, very clear and much um, tighter than with these um, Baroque or natural trumpets. And we'll have, there's some great videos of demonstrations of these. We'll put those on the show notes page too. But I want to play another example from this movement where it's a little bit more pronounced. And that is quite a great entrance for the trumpet the first time in this piece. Absolutely. And also something, there's an effect here that's going to inevitably be lost on a recording. I mean, this is a this is definitely one of those moments, sort of like the Pastoral Symphony. He does several uh, mo moments in this where it's a theatrical, you have to be there um, effect, you know, which, which you don't really get in music because you think of music as this primarily sort of audio experience. But he provides in this um, these, these uh, theatrical moments that are really about the thrill of the live performance and about things that you can't really uh, duplicate well on recordings. And, and this is definitely one of those moments where all of a sudden out of nowhere you get this trumpet sound. It's a sudden change in the texture already. Yes. Now we can get into scene five. Um, we're going to listen to Rejoice Greatly. And this is one we're going to hear different versions of. 
And when you think of different versions, sometimes it's, oh, different instruments, or maybe it's in a different key for a certain singer. Here we're playing in also completely different time signatures. So that's in 12-8. Basically, yes. we're thinking about, you know, those three notes to each beat. Da, 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 one, two, three, one, two, three. But there's also a version in 4-4. Four, four. Here's an example of that with um, Sir Colin Davis and the London Symphony Orchestra. totally different feeling. It is. And it's interesting, you know, how through the, you know, through time, which becomes uh, more popular. I think uh, most of us are probably, if you grew up listening to Messiah, you're more familiar with the second version that we just heard, the one in 4-4. I mean, to my ears, 12-8 sounds more like rejoicing. Sounds more like dancing, right? Yeah. And rejoice. And 4-4, it sounds more like you shall be happy. Do, 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 do. Right. <laughs> but, and but, in 4-4, four, four, there's now, you can think of four notes um, in a beat. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, as opposed to da, 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 da. Right. Which has that, it's that singing, singing, playful quality that I really love that 12-8 version. Oh, I do too. I It's hard to know exactly why one version wins out over another through through time. I do think that there might be, the 4-4 four, four version is probably a little easier to sing. Um, I think I have a feeling that that's, it's probably a better soprano showcase. And that's, you know, that's ultimately what, why it's going to win out. Yeah. Um, because the soprano always has the last word. But I, I really love that original version with, with 12-8. Oh, I, yeah. yeah it's, I, to me, that sounds like rejoicing. Oh, yeah. And we're going to get into part two next. But first, let's take a break. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. So with part one, we had the prophecy, the birth of Christ. We're into part two now, which gets into the death and resurrection of Christ. And actually, scene one is also, I think, it's the longest scene in the entire work, um, Messiah, and it opens with, uh, he was despised. This aria, which, as you say, is it's the longest single number in the entire work by far, and it is also uh, the number that really brings us into 
when it was performed. Because remember, this was a piece that was done during Holy Week, uh, which we usually associate with passions and the uh, the crucifixion story. And so now we're, you know, in the first part, it was, you know, Christmas was a history of a couple of months ago, right? And and Easter will be about the future. This is about the present, about what, about Lenten time and about, um, and about the the story of the crucifixion and and this aria um, really epitomizes the human element of that story uh, more than anything else. It's you know one person one person's emotions, one person's articulating of the the loneliness that's at the heart of this of of the crucifixion story. And, um, and the fact that he said it the way he did in a low woman's voice and, and yes, it was a low woman's voice, not a countertenor, not a, um, castrato or any of the other things that he employed. It was so specifically for this kind of voice. And, um, and of course, what do we associate with a low woman's voice? Motherhood. And that's again, not an accident. Uh, this is the mother's plea. Uh, talking about the tragedy and the 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 agony of the sun, and um, this is a, a song that gets us into the heart of the drama. And it's almost, you know, at you know between ten and twelve minutes, depending. Yeah. You know, it's it's a monodrama all in itself, and it is very very dramatic. And I think it's not an opera; it's not a staged theater production, but this is where things can get, I think, quite theatrical. Here's another example from a a later part of this uh, moment. From shame and spitting, the way it's just so. Oh yeah, and of course you can't you can't say the word spit without spitting. And when you think of elements of the crucifixion story, and you know, and they always and you read the Bible, and I think it's inevitable that people will always chortle a little bit to themselves when they read about the spitting part. Like, what's spitting doing in the Bible? Well. Actually, when you hear it sung like that, it's actually you hear the humiliation, you hear the drama, you hear how that spitting is an indication of the much worse things that are to come. And in a way, how spitting could be just as awful as murder in a way. I mean, it's it's this the the degradation, the public shame. Yeah, the public shame and uh, the personal uh, aspect of it all, the, the, the particular offense of it. And it's, um, and of course it's something that we can all relate to, you know, if you're ever bullied as as children or anything. And and so it really brings this whole drama down to a very human level. And going on from here, there's also theft coming from uh, this work as well. Let's listen to the opening here of And With His Stripes. Now, Handel didn't steal this. 
but someone else did, right? Yes. Um, if you're familiar with uh, Mozart's Requiem, you might say, hey, wait, Kyrie, isn't that right? Very similar. I mean, first of all, um, intellectual property laws were not really a thing in the 18th century. Uh, But in this case, Mozart uh, did, in fact, um, he actually, actually the Requiem, that's not the only example of of Mozart stealing from Handel in the Requiem. The opening uh, of Mozart's Requiem was actually stolen from uh, the uh, the Ode to Queen Caroline, which is another funeral work of by Handel. Uh, but I think the fact that Mozart stole from one extremely famous choral work for perhaps an equally the only other equally famous choral work, right? <laughs> and and also Mozart was possibly even playing on the fact that perhaps he knew his audience would know this piece and know that reference. Yeah. There weren't any recordings at this time, so there weren't a lot of references to this subject matter or material um, musically where someone listens and say, hey, isn't that this? I heard this before. You had to go physically to a concert to see this live music. Right. But he knew that people knew Messiah. Because right, in this case, And yes. so you could actually say um, that this is an example of sampling. That, you know, and and that's, and what is sampling other than an artist taking something from another artist precisely because he's, or she is sort of playing on your familiarity with the source material as a kind of shorthand uh, to create a new work of art. So this is, this is sample, this is straight up sampling. Let's jump into scene three now. This is Lift Up Your Heads. Again, even just going back real quick to the clarity of that sound, fewer musicians, fewer singers, and just that clarity of sound popping out. And you're able to do more um, musical things with the phrase that you can't easily do with a massive choir. Right. Now, most of the oratorio uh, for the choir is in four parts, SATB, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. This is the only chorus that's in five parts where the sopranos are divided into soprano one and soprano two. So you get that trio um, texture of two sopranos and an alto, a woman's chorus being presented as opposed to a men's chorus, each with their own distinct sound world. And and that does help, as you say, uh, um, in the clarity of the of expressing the text and of expressing um, these different worlds, these different aspects of what lifting up your heads could mean, and of what of you're lifting it from somewhere and going to somewhere and looking at things in a different perspective. And we can go into scene six. I I love this. Why do the nations so furiously rage together? Why do the 
And he is really displaying the furiousness of it, all, all the notes in the strings, but also in the solo for the singer as well, this low voice. Yeah, what I love about it is that it really does sound like he's asking a question. You know, he's surrounded by all these uh, strings that are, you know, portraying war- warfare that seems to be constant and was just as constant in Handel's time as it is now. Oh, yeah. And, um, but there's almost something slightly matter of fact about it too. It's sort of like, yep, this is just the way it is. Yeah. I think if it was in a minor key, it would be more in the moment of of suffering or something. But in this major key, it's more detached and asking, as you said, this question. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that he used a major key for this because it's it's not so much the drama. I mean, like he saves the drama for the personal moments of of and this is more like um what do we do? We've got this situation on earth right now yeah. that, that we're dealing with. And you hear the the bass, um, you know, singing all these notes and uh, in something that we call melisma. Yeah. Melisma, all those notes, especially fun in a bass because it sounds kind of funny. It's very difficult, but it, it is kind of like um, not a bag of tricks, but it's something super impressive. And this melisma is taking one syllable and using that to sing rapidly a succession of notes. As we heard in here when with him singing, and it's especially for a bass singer, it's very challenging. Oh, yes. And you know, when we think of melisma, and melisma is still very much with us. If you've oh, ever yes. watched American Idol, it's pretty much all melisma. The voice. <laughs> the voice, yeah. All, all those shows. Um, you know, Whitney Houston, that you know, uh, Mariah Carey, all those people. It's all about how many no, – where somebody's singing the Star Spangled Banner and it's all of a sudden, you know, five minutes long because they're adding all these There's a lot of melismas. And a lot of melismas. And so, again, you you – associate that effect with something that's that's very expressive and virtuosic and so uh as you said when a when a man does it especially in this context it does have this different kind of affect it's oh yeah and there's and just to reiterate there's a big difference between Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey doing it as opposed to you know other singers that maybe use it to not so great effect yes. that those amazing singers have have done but he there's some also some great image painting i think something similar in still within scene 6 and that is let us break their bonds They make that sound very easy, but that is very, very hard. It's very hard. And that is just one of the illustrations of one of the things that that Handel was so good at was this idea of you are there. This this image, you are going to feel this image. You are going to, you know, this is not just a word on a page that we're singing to sound um the sound, you know, there's there's a direct correlation between the text. And the music, and you know, and the music is very definitely about this. You could not, um, 
you cannot use that music and substitute different words to it about something else, which um, which you could do with Bach, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and Bach himself did that. You couldn't do that here. You know, this is one of the things that makes Handel Handel is you hear those bonds being broken. Yeah. And he's putting those same very big demands on the singers singing from very high to very low in their register rapidly. I mean, just try doing that on your own if no one's around you at the moment. It's hard. And it's similar to the, um, I think, And With His Stripes that we heard before, where there's a lot of demand on the singers to really pull this off. But of course, here they make it sound, you know, very easy. Yes. So that brings us to scene seven, uh, a moment where... Everyone knows it's ubiquitous in pop culture, movies, TV shows, commercials, everything. It's what everyone loves, and that is the Hallelujah Chorus. Now, we know what it sounds like. We're going to listen to some different examples of a small version and then the huge version we're used to. But first, well, James, do you stand when you hear the Hallelujah Chorus? Well, everybody else does. So you have to. So you kind of have to, yeah. you know, and... Um, the reports vary about how that tradition got started. Uh, apparently, it was just because the king came in, and that was when he came in, and everybody stood uh, because he stood. Uh, we don't know. We'll never no. really know. Um, I think it's people who aren't familiar with the piece are always surprised that this isn't the end of the piece. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it sounds like it's the end. But it really bugs me that we don't really, really know. Some say that's when the king walked in, and then for however everyone in the, in the hall saw it and immediately stood up or he was so moved by it he stood up but if did he stand up at the end if he was how would he stand up at the beginning and be so moved if he hadn't heard it you know so that's when people stood up or maybe he had gout and had to stand right we don't know but but certainly i mean since all of this is you know, apocryphal anyway i think what we really have to get to is why it feels natural to stand because yeah. it does there is something about this piece that makes it hard to stay seated, that it really does seem to embody um, a sense of hallelujah from, hallelujah from humanity. It does, there's something so primal about about this chorus. And again, non-ex, you know, it's, it earned, it's earned its reputation, I think. And it's really a tradition, I think, I've been looking up, how did this start? Why did this start? And it seems like it's also still a tradition mainly in American and English audiences. I saw someone was writing a, in a comment forum. They were in um, Scandinavia or something, they were, and they stood up and, and people said, sit down. I feel so, felt so bad for them, but it's, it's, it's interesting how it's still a tradition, but not everywhere. I think this does separate the English-speaking countries, I think especially England, from the rest of us. I mean, if you've ever watched um, footage of the proms, like Last Night of the Proms or any of those, or Parliament for that matter, just the British are a little different from yeah. the rest of us. They have their, and, you know, they, what moves them, uh, what, you know, the tears they shed over the Nimrod variation or, or, or the, I mean, the, they have a very specific kind of sentiment, you know, um, and, and they express it in a very particular way. And this, I think, speaks to that. It's, you could almost call it the unofficial anthem, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, we need to listen to it. Let's listen to it. And if you're used to the huge performances of this piece, you know, a massive choir, massive orchestra, this might sound very, very different. Holy 
I love this though. This version or the smaller yes um, ensemble and singers. Oh, absolutely! You can hear that vibrancy, and uh, you can hear that it really sounds like Hallelujah, and it's a, it's not it's not militaristic. It's joyful. You hear the joy in in the vibrancy you know, in those in those words and in those singers. And I think musically, they can do some of those more intricacies with a smaller group that you can as opposed to with a larger one. But the large, you know, it's it's there's something powerful about hearing a massive choir too. Well, again, after hearing what we just heard, it's kind of hard. It's like, why do you need 10,000 voices for that? But maybe you're about to he- tell us why. And we'll hear why. Right. That's um, Sir Colin Davis, again, with the London Symphony Orchestra. But that's that big sound you also hear in commercials and TV. It's got a big impact to right, it. Right, exactly. And this is also within this chorus where the trumpet returns. This is a very hard um, moment, brass players will call solo, for the trumpet, often played on a piccolo trumpet yes. um, as well. But, you know, at this time, the natural trumpet. But also I just wanted to point out uh, before we hear that, we might remember that if you're actually listening to this piece live, you've been there for about two hours. This is the first time we hear the timpani. This is the first time we have dr- we have not had drums so far. Not had anything except for that one appearance of the trumpets, you know, that back in Glory Forgotten Part One, and then other than that, it's just strings. So, this is the first appearance of the tr- of the of the timpani, and also in the performances that he did in. London, he added a pair of horns, doubling the um, trumpets of the lower octave. So here's a moment with the the trumpet, and you'll you'll surely recognize also this. And they're, they're hanging out on these high notes, especially if they're playing something like a natural trumpet. It takes a lot of dexterity and stamina to sustain and keep that in tune, not drift sharp or anything. Also, you've, you've played tuba on this, right? I've played this Hallelujah Chorus specifically, and within three or four years, played at least 200-something times. But it's And it was fun to do, you know, and it's... Not there was no tuba invented at this time, of course, but it's fun. But I really like this version pared down too. Now the tuba is is true that Handel never knew a tuba, but it's not. But at least it's an instrument that was sort of he could have understood the impulse for a tuba. Yeah, you know more than he could have understood, say, the impulse for the 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 synth drums that you were playing at the beginning of the oh, podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or, um, or even using clarinets in this piece. But oh, I definitely. Th- but I think he could have, I mean, he used, he wrote for, you know, Serpent, which was, you know, and and, and the double bassoon and other, th- I mean, he, it, it, I mean, he did try to stretch himself in terms of, you know, he wanted extra bass. So I think he would have taken to the tuba, I have a feeling. And if you've never heard of the Serpent, don't worry, you're along with 99.99% of the, 
um, you you shouldn't know what a serpent is, but we'll put I'll put some uh, a video and some pictures on the show notes page. It's a super interesting instrument and very very interesting sound. Yes, yes. Now here is the end of the Hallelujah chorus with still this smaller uh, version. Now, also notice, if you've heard a lot of versions of this, every timpani player does something different there. Um, Sometimes, you know, he just writes basic notes, you know. uh, So whether or not – it's not wrong to do a a trill or a roll, though that's not what Handel uh, tells you to do. But that's why there's – if you think every – Every record you ever heard has the timpanist does something different. It's because they do. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with Handel. It's right. just the drummer deciding that it's time for a solo. Or the conductor telling them. <laughs> or the conductor is deciding that it's time for the timpani to – since the timpani has so little to do in this piece, at least in the original version. Mm-hmm. And when you hear that – the glorious way he – um, Handel scores for those trumpets and the violins and the timpani, and especially in the context of what we've heard so far in the original version, it's it's this um, splendor of sound. However, if you're listening to a more modern version where they've already added everything, then they have to outdo themselves, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's not the end of the piece, even though you might reasonably think it would be since, you know, how, what, where could you actually go after that? Well, where we've gone so far is the, the miracle of the resurrection, correct? Yeah. And, um, but then there's more after that. And if you go to, if you go to your Bible and go to the last chapter of, of Revelations and about about the future of humanity yeah. uh, and the future, you know, what's the end game as it were. Um, he goes there. He, the, this piece covers the entire gamut of Christian theology. And, and so now having uh, gone through the Holy Week story, uh, which is the central story, literally, <laughs> figuratively, uh, but, but it's not the whole story. No. And, and now in a way it's not so much, the figure of Christ as a person, but as a symbol and as, you know, the idea of the Redeemer that takes us through end times. So if you've been standing up for the Hallelujah Chorus, go ahead and sit down, and we're going to get into part three right after this. There's great seasonal music this month on Classical WETA, like Christmas Eve Carol Fest, the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols from King's College, Cambridge, and of course, Handel's Messiah. All the information you need is at weta.org slash happy holidays. So as you've said, James, 
getting into part three. We are now into the eternal life and judgment part of Handel's Messiah. And this opens up with this um, aria, right? I know that my Redeemer liveth, which is today probably not recognizable to the average person, but in Handel's time was actually extremely popular. Yes, this was as popular as the, as the Hallelujah Chorus. It was the first... Um... It was the first section of the chorus to actually be used in actual liturgy. I mean, nowadays, if you go to a church, you might hear excerpts from Messiah in, in actual church services. And this is the this is the aria that that started that tradition. And when we look at the words, um, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he, that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and the worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And so the idea that this is about eternity is, um, is central to this. And he returns to the same key that we heard near the very beginning of the piece, E major, the same key as comfort ye. And it, it helps bring us like, remember, this is, this is what it's about. And so we're going back to the beginning, but then we're going, but then it's also the introduction to the third part to go one step beyond. And as we've heard a couple of times in in the work where there is maybe they're asking a question in the why do the nations so furious furiously rage here it's this statement of that this soprano is is making that is like I really believe I mean when she says I know and it's like not just I know it is fact when she is singing this Absolutely and I think that's what makes it so so popular with uh, as as a liturgical statement as a, as a as a religious statement is because it really, I mean, you can say credo and unum deum as much as you want, but this really makes it hits home, you know, in terms of it's not just this formal thing that you recite in mass, but something where you can feel the belief, you can feel the certainty, you can feel the faith, you can feel the 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 comfort and the knowledge. And the idea that that faith is so ingrained in you and you and you feel how that feels for this person to be singing that. And this is, in a way, the birth of Christian gospel music, if you will. You yeah. Know, the, the idea that you could have a song. And this was a pop song in its day. Oh, yeah. Very <laughs> popular. And this whole speaking of fact and matter of fact and I know, it's kind of a theme that follows in a lot of the different movements here in part three, um, these big statements that are, I know for a fact. Going into scene two, we have the trumpet shall sound.
and here's where you can really hear the trumpet and maybe I hope you can hear the difference of this natural trumpet sound. But we have I have another example with the London Symphony Orchestra played on a modern trumpet. get a lot more crisp snapping sound from note to note and the trills are a bit easier too but uh, there is something about having this piece with that natural trumpet sound. I can just imagine what one of those guild trumpeters thought when they came in and they thought oh we're just going to do a couple of choruses you know you know then all of a sudden wait i got a solo you've got a solo (laughs) and it's hard and you can't mess it up yeah and you've got you know one hour to learn it maybe or you have to basically sight read it and do it and nail it and it's yeah and and it's interesting because this started a trend because after he did this and became successful then he did other oratorios, including Judas Maccabeus, in which he also has a trumpet solo. And obviously he did that because everybody loved this aria so much that, you know, again, Handel recycling himself. And, uh, but it's, uh, but it, it, but it is such a, um, I mean, it creates such a, such a unique effect in this piece because again, most of this piece is just strings, Yeah, you know, with possibly, depending on the version, a few oboes and horns that are just doubling parts. There's no oboe solos. There's no bassoon solos. Um, they're just part of the texture when they, when you, they are used. But here it's, it, this is the only real instrumental solo, uh, in the entire work. Uh, there's some versions where there's a violin solo, but that's, that's, yeah. but, you know, those aren't the common versions. So this is really it. And it's a trumpet. It's not a violin. It's not an oboe. It's a, it's not a flute. It's uh it's, and so there, it definitely makes you sit up and take notice. Yeah. And it's this, as we you've said many times, there is no mistakes here with Handel and his writing. The trumpet, it's this melody solo, but it also still has that arrival kind of trumpet herald sound that you can associate with the trumpet at this time. And it's paired with the low voice of a bass. And this is when the bass sings, the trumpet shall sound. It is this declaration. And I, I imagine maybe with this bass voice, it is this more booming, believable voice, like you can't question it almost. Right, exactly. Now, what's interesting is that in the original version, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. That's how he originally said it was corruptible. Okay. And um, and most, pretty much everybody, including I'm pretty sure that, you know, have um, have amended it to so incorruptible so that it right. sounds like English. Yeah. But there's a school of thought that maybe Handel knew what he was doing because he was corrupting the scansion of corruptible. Okay. And then he said, and we shall be changed. The reason people feel free to change it to incorruptible is they just think, oh, Handel, you know, English was not his first language. So he was just, let's just change this and we won't tell him and we'll make it more singable. And um, Well, it sounds like this is even more different in examples we've already heard. Instead of despised, despise it or walked or walk it. Here, it's not even that. It's something different, kind of like what you're saying, corrupting the word corruptible. Oh! 
Corruptible. Yeah. And it's it's such a big moment within this, and it's just that sim- that complexity within the simplicity that I think makes this music, no matter, how, no matter how many times you hear it, there's always something more to learn, something more to, to get into. Yes. And that brings us to scene four, the final chorus, Worthy is the Lamb. Now let's listen to the opening of this. This still being that that smaller orchestration, but a huge sound, and again this, what we've heard already in part three, which is this declamatory statement, this angelic choir sounding hymn and very liturgical and church-like in this instance, and it sounds unquestionable. Oh yes, absolutely, and I think um, this is something that Handel learned in his oratorios. I think you know those who learn Handel through Messiah and his oratorios are always a little bit disappointed by his operas because they don't have, they don't end in that same spectacular way. I mean, they might have a nice chorus, but it wasn't until he started doing oratorios that he realized, okay, you make somebody sit for three hours, we're going to reward you at the end with this, with this catharsis, you know, that really makes you think like, okay, I've, I've been through something. And, and it's, and it's, it's cinematic and um, spectacular, and and he also knows. Okay, I have to do the Hallelujah chorus now that they just heard you know, forty minutes ago, and and he does it. He does, it. in fact, outdo it with this uh, amazing uh, tripartite uh, structure in yeah. this in this last chorus. And and uh, where he where again he's, he's so graphic. You know, we hear to receive power and riches and wisdom and. And it's it, it really feels like the end of an epic journey, which, of course, is the end of everything. Yeah. <laughs> Let's listen to the opening of this again, but with that big chorus and London Symphony. And what I really like is actually the first 0.3 seconds of what we just heard is the organ. In the first example, it's it's a nice, small-sounding, you know, one—I um, forget what they're called. Manual. One manual. But then when you have the—what we just heard, there's now more. There's the pedal. There's the bass. It's huge. Actually, in a weird way, the recording we just heard got something right that the original music version did not get right. Okay. Because— um, it's true that the organs in Handel's time weren't these big mammoth things that you see in cathedrals, but they also weren't these tiny little wooden boxes either. And the sound of the organ was dominant. 
yeah. you know, in the orchestra in a way that you don't really hear in a lot of early music recordings because they're just playing those little one manual wooden organs that you're just talking about, which are beautiful for chamber music or for recitatives. But there was more to them and they did dominate the sound, sort of like what we just heard in that Colin Davis recording where they, you could, the, the organ was a main event even more than you know, 30 or 40 instrumentalists, you yeah. can still hear the organ. So I think that that's actually not wrong. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I love the sound. And, and just real quick for everyone, um, when you say manuals, there is, it's like a keyboard. So when you see an organ, it looks like it has three keyboards stacked on top of each other. That's, you know, those are each of what we can call a manual um, from the organ. But that, that huge sound, uh, here's another excerpt from more in the middle of this uh, work. It's not over, of course. There's a no. lot more that follows it. Yes. But again, remember just how much every timpani stroke counted. Oh, yeah. It was such an event to hear that in Handel's time, you know, when the world was quieter, right? And yeah. and and music was quieter and there was a lot. So that every stroke of, of the timpani, which, you know, they had just heard so few of them in the course of these three hours – that was an event, sort of like that's what it's thrilling to hear that, and uh, and it's a special, it's a special extra thing that it was wow. And you know what we call that, right? CPN, cash per note. You got you have a gig, and it's you know it's a high CPN. If you only play a couple of notes, uh, that also means you can't mess up. You, you mess see, up a few notes. Only tuba players think like this, and percussionists, I guess. Yeah. Cello players play all the time, so there's, you know, That's... we don't forget about it. Oh, yeah. If you played us CPM, then, you know, we'd be doing a lot better than we are. <laughs> right, right. But that's, I mean, that's just a, a fun thing to remember. There's a lot of pressure, of course, to not, there's a, there's a million stories about, you know, having a high CPN, and then, um, well, just real quick, I'll tell one, I was doing an opera in, Amsterdam. It was a premiere of it. It was a huge production. Um, it was called The Dog's Heart. And I had an onstage part and then an offstage part. And for one of the final rehearsals, we sat offstage for at least two and a half, close to three hours. And they hadn't gotten to our final part yet. And then we didn't realize it. They went into it and we didn't play. And then it ended and then it was like, all right, we'll see you tomorrow. And the, the rehearsal ended and everyone left and we sat there for three hours and then uh, you still get paid. But it was uh, – you feel very bad yes. if, if you – but, you know, we were off stage in the dark looking at a TV monitor of the conductor. And, right. Well, that that is the nerve-wracking thing. You, you know, you might be the triangle player and you might only get three notes, but you can't just – space out and read a magazine because you have to pay attention. Oh, yeah. And you have to get those three notes completely perfectly. Can you imagine the, the nerve, you know, just that's, and they're so exposed because everybody's hearing that. You know? Oh, yeah. I've got some good stories about that too. <laughs> but let's listen to the end, the final end of this entire work.
And really, to be serious about it, you're exactly right with every stroke of the timpani is important. It has to be exact with everyone else. And the way the timpani player plays, especially in that example, it sets the entire mood for the sound that we're hearing with the orchestra and the singers. Right. But what I really want to get back to is that silence. I can think of few things more powerful that you have this entire orchestra all of a sudden. And they, of course, because of the harmony, the audience knows it's not the end. And they're just waiting so much. And there's so much anticipation in that. That was It's such a uh, master stroke, as it were. It's such a, such a, um, uh, an amazing dramatic uh, device to do that. It's uh, several hours that you're into this, and this is the final thing. And I love what you're saying about the silence being important. As musicians know, the silence is just as important, sometimes more important, especially in this case, and how you really frame, especially an important part, like the ending, yeah. how you how it ends is how everyone leaves emotionally with, with the music. Well, I hope everyone has learned a little bit more about Handel's Messiah and some fun things to take away as, of course, it is December and it is time to hear Messiah in all different kinds of ways, too. Well, thank you, James, for joining me and illuminating me, too, on Handel's Messiah. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. Visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org for more information on Handel's Messiah. And if you have ideas for episodes, comments, or just want to tell me why you love classical music, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.